Genuine healing is not understood, it is felt. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a total shit show. I am a recovering alcoholic. I am an adult child of a dysfunctional family, and I am the captain of this hot mess of a ship. So today we are diving deep with Jamie McCoy. She is a psychotherapist. She is a trauma coach. She is trained in a million bajillion different things. Uh, She is a fellow dysfunctional family survivor whose unresolved childhood shit showed up through chronic illness, uh, which you're going to get to hear all about. We're talking somatic experiencing. We are talking polyvagal theory. So let's just get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you, need to damn the join shit show. This is my online support community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you will feel seen, heard, and understood like never before by a bunch of other fellow shit shows who know exactly how you feel. So here's the deal, folks. You know, community is so damn important when it comes to this recovery work. Like you should view community as essentially like fertilizer on your healing recovery garden. Okay. As I've said before, this is relational trauma. We heal relational trauma through safe relationships. And this is the place where you can find those safe relationships. So let's do the damn thing. See the show notes uh, for a link to join next. Give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok at adult child pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five star rating on Apple, on Spotify. Thank you. Love you all. All right, y'all. Jamie McCoy. I can't screw that up. What if you were like, no, it's like Jamie. <laughs> Does anyone ever mess it up? I, I think one person called me Jaime. Jaime? Well, oh, I like that. I yeah. That. But that's like, I think it's like Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's new. She is a integrated trauma therapist and coach. And you are trained in a million bajillion things which we'll Mm -hmm. touch into some of those, but here's where I like to start with everybody. And I don't know your trauma history, but usually where I like to start is when did you realize that your childhood fucked you up a lot more than you thought it did? Amen. You know, I think that like so many other people who end up becoming therapists, I think I was aware at a very young age about the dysfunction in my family And I was a very vocal child. I was very much a truth teller and said it like it was. And I had no problem, you know, confronting people on what I thought these dynamics were. And I remember I used to write my dad letters of like, oh, hey, guess what I figured out? I figured out that grandma did this to you and now you're doing this to me. And so it doesn't have to happen. I was like nine when I wrote my letter to him just saying like, I I thought I was this brilliant person. I had just figured out these generational dynamics that, oh my God. Stop. Well, (laughs) share. (laughs) So 
I mean, essentially, I just noticed things about my grandmother. Like she was really hard on my dad and she just was always very much favoring my aunt. And my aunt was not the nicest person on the planet. My father wasn't the nicest person on the planet, but my aunt was definitely just not a nice person. And my grandmother very much valued her and my cousins over me and my sister. And there was just like this, a lot of those dynamics going on that I could tell my dad was rejected and he became very successful, bought them a house and he still didn't get the attention and validation from his parents. And I just noticed these things. And I figured just the way that she kind of was neglectful, that must've been hard for my dad. And I figured, you know, I would confront him about that and be like, hey, so you should probably relate to me a lot more because the way you probably felt with grandma, that's how I feel now. How would he respond to that? Not very well. Yeah. <laughs> not, not very well. So it was mostly a lot of gaslighting, a lot of I'm a liar. And so I became, you know, someone who I was pegged as the scapegoat that yeah, Jamie's a liar. Don't believe her. And it makes you really question, like, am I seeing this wrong? Is this stuff normal then? Like, is there something wrong with me that I thought I had this so clearly understood? And then, you know, I just retreat further and further into myself and start suppressing my own needs and my own voice and just tried to become as invisible as possible by that point as a teenager. And so then I didn't kind of I think it wasn't until I got to college and I was living with my sister. She had gotten into a lot of drugs and a lot of issues with that, bringing bad people around. And I realized that this was just really unhealthy and I need to get out of here. And so I think me moving away from the family, going to New York City at 19, getting to talk to a counselor at that point at NYU, realizing like, oh my God, I couldn't really see anything clearly. So long as I was like still in it, living in the dynamics and that's where I think things started to become a little bit clearer that maybe I wasn't crazy and maybe there's something wrong here. And maybe there's a reason my sister became an addict mm -hmm. and that I have the self-esteem that I do and these issues that I do and picking all the wrong people and being attracted to this kind of chaos all the time. And so I would say at 19, it kind of crystallized where I finally started believing, no, I think there's something valid here that's wrong. Wow. Was there alcoholism or addiction in your family growing up? Not, well, my aunt, the one that I mentioned, my father's sister, she was an alcoholic. She was always drunk. But other than that, like in the immediate family, my parents, they didn't really drink or do drugs or anything like that. It was my sister had a traumatic brain injury when she was 11. And after that point, started hanging out with some people that weren't the best influence. And she started getting into drugs and alcohol at a very young age. What role did she play? Like if you were the scapegoat, what was she? She was the golden child in a way. However... She wasn't like the typical golden child where she was straight A's. She was a rebel. She hung out with bad people, but my father in very much- In their eyes. Yeah, in their eyes. My father related to her. They were very similar. She's also pretty narcissistic, same as my father. They have very similar personalities. And I think he raised her to sort of become a bully to me. And the two of them ganged up on me a lot. And so they were just best buds. And I was the one they could pick on. And that was just sort of the dynamic where it was this triangulation all the time with the two of them. And my mother was more avoidant. Yes, she was avoidant off, didn't really want to. I mean, she herself had to deal with my father not being so great to her. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, I can see her dissociation. There was a reason it happened. She couldn't handle it. Was it just the two of you, you and your sister? Yes, just me and my sister. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they yeah. always say that the scapegoat often is... It is the one that can see clearly. Yes. 
Yeah. And it is very unfortunate, very unfortunate, because I also have a lot of empathy for my sister at the time I did. And at the time, you know, I just looked at her as, you know, abusive and a bully. But now I can see, you know, our pain comes from somewhere. Addiction doesn't come out of nowhere. And so the dynamics in our household, the yelling, the chaos, she was dealing with it in her own way, too. And it took me a long time to have that compassion for her, really. What happened when she became an addict? Like, did she step into that scapegoat role at all or what? Not really. That was the thing that my parents ignored it. So I would voice to them, there's something wrong. She's having these people come over to the house. They're doing drugs. One of them drove into a tree. One of them pulled out a knife on someone. Like these not good things are happening. And my parents were like, shut up, Jamie, that didn't happen. Or it's not a big deal. Or, you know, you're just blowing it out of proportion. And so I would try to voice this. And when I moved in with her, when we were both going to the same college at the University of Miami, She's having all these parties all the time. I'm telling my parents what's happening and they are just blind eye to it. Didn't want to acknowledge it. Didn't. And so it really wasn't until I left that they were able to see things were getting really bad with her and that they couldn't ignore it anymore. Like she was just wasted all the time. And, you know, they found stuff at her house and could finally couldn't ignore it anymore. So they would send her to rehabs multiple times. It just happened over and over again and kept wanting to believe that she was better and she would relapse. But I think it was their denial, honestly. It was just, I had, it didn't matter what I said. I could provide all the evidence to them. They were so in denial that there was a problem there. Because of the I just reflection had to, it has on them, right? Because she's like yeah. the golden child, right? So what does that mean about them? Exactly, exactly. And so it's just easier just to not believe me. And, you know, it's unfortunate because I think maybe she could have gotten help faster if she was, you know, younger when she gotten help. But, you know, there's nothing I could do. I had to take care of myself at that point, you know, I get sober currently. So this has still been an ongoing thing. It's been decades. And currently she, I believe is sober in a halfway house, but I'm not entirely sure because I haven't been on consistent speaking terms with her in a little bit. Mm, It's so hard. Yeah. 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 It's been an ongoing, I don't know that she'll ever fully be okay. I'm not sure. Cause it's just been 20 years or 25 years. And I don't know. I feel like there's got to be some kind of brain damage at this point. She had the traumatic brain injury, but then the consistent drug use, it's very hard to connect with her and have a conversation. Yeah. So my story, I was thinking about with you and voicing things and being a scapegoat, not believed, you know, my experience was, and I think that that is so much the experience of a lot of my listeners in the sense that like parents aren't addressing like what's going on in the home. And so you don't trust your reality, right? And in my situation, it was like, I was heavily parentified, like, and and told about my mom's alcoholism at like eight years old and was, became kind of my dad's sidekick then searching the house for booze. And so there was the acknowledgement of it, but there was never any solution, Mm -hmm. you know, like nothing was ever done about it. And then I became the scapegoat at nine. And then I started drinking and using drugs at 12 and was the focus of the family for the next seven years until I got sober at 19. But that worked in keeping like, that fixed my parents. Like my mom stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting. But then as soon as I got sober, it's just been a downward spiral for the both of them. And I'm an only child. And I mean, I don't know how my mom's alive either. I mean, she falls downstairs, has broken ribs, broken her heel. I mean, I don't know how that, it's really devastating. So it's like, Sorry. There's a, it's like a balloon, right? Like in the, the dysfunction pops out somewhere 
And if that goes away, like it'd be interesting, like if your sister were to get sober or in those periods of times that she has been, like, have you noticed anything with your parents or like dynamic shifting within the family? So what's interesting to me is what what I see is the dynamic is when she is away in rehab or messed up, that's when my father will try to have a relationship with me. Mm-hmm. And then he what he does is he talks crap about each other. Like there's a triangulation that goes on. And that, then I become, and honestly, this really only happened after my mother passed away in 2020. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, nothing was wrong. It just was a very sudden shock. And that's when my sister kind of spiraled even further. But the dynamics then, as my sister was spiraling in the last few years, my father was coming to me to try and like, well, she's a mess. You're the goal. Like, I'm the golden child suddenly. I've never had that role before. And so- about like just being his daughter? Exactly. And now I can take care of him. But really what it is, is my sister had him on a pedestal. My sister idealized him. And so when she's off messed up in rehab or something, then he's expecting that. Like, I'm going to step in and fit that role, but doesn't work because- I have to have boundaries with my father. He's the source of it all. So I think that there's just was a lot of abuse and chaos in the home. He was very temperamental, very physically and emotionally abusive. And, you know, my sister and I grew up in that same environment and she mimicked him and I retreated and became just much more, you know, I I guess I just needed to kind of shut down and I was more dissociated probably for most of my life because there was nothing else I could do. I couldn't escape it. And so it was just like, how long can it be until I can leave this? Has, has he ever done Al-Anon? No, he won't go to therapy. <laughs> he, goes to, he does see a therapist, but I kind of question, I question that relationship because it's been going on for quite a while and he refuses to have a therapy session with me and the therapist. So I'm wondering, you know, who is this therapist that won't let you have a family session? <laughs> so I, it's probably not coming from the therapist, it's probably coming from my, my father, but Yeah, it's one of those things where I had to get to a place of acceptance that boundaries are about creating safety for myself. It's not, I can't punish them. There's nothing that I can do to make them change. I just kind of have to take care of myself. Yeah, figure out how to have a relationship with them that is not super detrimental to you, right? And it's like that. And for some people, they can't get to that place, you know, and have to go to contact. What's the longest period of time your sister's ever had been sober? I honestly don't even know. Cause it's like most of the time that I talk to her, if she says she's sober, she's either smoking weed still. I used to be able to keep track via social media because she would post when she was high. And I could see like, depending on the girlfriend that she had at the time, her relationships, they would just be drug buddies. And so when I would start seeing that, I'm like, she'd say she's sober, but she's clearly high. I don't know what she's on. So I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. So was that your first job at the addiction treatment center? Was that your first job out of college or out of so, in the Yeah, so field? in grad school, I worked at some place called the National Institute for Psychotherapies. It was much more of a traditional, regular therapy clinic. And then after I graduated, then yes, I worked in addiction treatment. And so I worked at this one clinic that it takes, you know, like Medicaid and you see anyone and everyone. So I ran like five group therapies a day where we would have, a whole host of people where you'd have Wall Street brokers with homeless people with, you know, doctors and nurses, like people from all walks of life in the same room and running those groups. And this is sort of my first experience working. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm just like, wow, this is fascinating. And, and you're not even a fucking recovering addict either. <laughs> not, I mean, I will say like, I have my own issues, probably yeah. drinking a little too much and uh-huh. using alcohol and marijuana at times in my life just to like yeah. deal with depression. But I was never to the extent of my sister yeah. and no, I wouldn't define myself and identify as an addict, but I been around it my whole life. Right. I know those behaviors. And what I noticed is just as everybody was talking, it was just like, everyone has trauma. They all have trauma. It's like coming from the same pain. And why isn't this- What year was that? That You said 2011, 2012? Uh, That was in 2010. That was in 2010. I believe so, 2010 at that time. But yeah, it was- Trauma wasn't like a big thing at that time that people talked about. And even when I went in school in 2008, when I was in grad school, it's not like they really dove deep into the nervous system or anything about- how does complex PTSD present? It was more like the traditional PTSD. And then what psychopharmacology can we assign to people who exhibit certain symptoms? But it really just wasn't the level of training that I think therapists need to have in order to deal with the breadth of issues that so much at the root can be trauma. And we're totally missing the mark there. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I never, it wasn't until nine years sober was when I realized like that, what my issue was, was complex PTSD because it was showing up in dating Mm -hmm. Um, and I couldn't figure out what the fuck was wrong with me. And I just think about that. Like, you know, I went to treatment for the first time in the eighth grade, but all the treatment centers that I went to, and then, I mean, granted it really didn't start to show itself until you know, the the effects of my childhood didn't really start to show itself really until, I mean, obviously the drinking and the acting out is the effect of that. But I mean, like the trauma, like the complex PTSD aspect of it, because the drugs and alcohol was medicating that obviously, but it wasn't until I got sober. And as I continued to date, right, like it got worse and worse in each relationship. But I mean, there wasn't a single person in a meeting that I ever went to that was like, hey, you might want to check this out. And it's, you know, and, and so that was like six years ago was when I figured it out. And I just think like my whole view on alcoholism and addiction has changed profoundly. I mean, AA saved my life. And I think I had Dr. Drew on my podcast a while ago and, and he was saying to me, I'm like, because I have a lot of girlfriends that I got sober with that like, they've never hit this second bottom. Like they've never had all of this trauma come up for them. And he's just said, you know, I think that everybody has it. He goes, I think that just for some people, it never gets painful enough for them to where they'll have to go and treat it versus somebody like you, like you were going to die if you didn't treat it, you know, but it's, I do really believe it. It's all rooted in trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And it really depends on the resources people have available to them. That's what, you know, if we come from a family where they're not very available, not attuned, cannot handle their own emotions at all, you don't have that foundation and those resources for yourself to be able to get through the traumatic experience because two people can go through the exact same thing. But why does one come out traumatized and the other doesn't? Well, who has attachment trauma? Like who didn't have that base and foundational secure attachment with their family where they had that resource that they had someone to get through it with in the co-regulation to get through that experience that to know and have it reflected back that they're going to be okay. It's amazing how subjective it is and how it presents. Yeah. So how did, I know for you, health issues were a thing for you, but how did kind of the effects of, of your trauma, I mean, you said you, you know, it really clicked for you at like 19, but then how did it unfold from there? I think similar to you, so much comes out in relationships and you're picking people that you don't realize you're picking them because of how familiar that dynamic is. And you're not really realizing it at the time. 
because it's all you know. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, it's just the patterns repeat and you hit a rock bottom where I, for me, it's just, I guess I was doing a lot of drinking at the time when I was dating and I was covering up how I felt. And there came a certain point where I couldn't ignore the feelings anymore, where, you know, you reach a point where you don't want to be around anymore. And I think once I hit that, I found a different therapist, you know, it was what just, age was that? I was probably 23, 23, 24. And that is who helped me kind of uncover these dynamics. And it wasn't just my father that was the problem, but it was also, I didn't have a mother who was there to kind of protect me from a lot of this stuff. And so I had to learn how to do that for myself. And it was a big wake up call and worked through a lot with that therapist. Although it was just traditional talk therapy at the time, I think it's really important to develop awareness and turn that light on. And she's who actually encouraged me to become a therapist. And I went to social work school shortly after working with her for a couple of years. What were you going to do? You know, I was a writer. I'm still a writer, but I went to NYU for film and television writing and stories. And, you know, basically how do I, like, I just want to listen to people's stories and how can I somehow be a part of that and help? And that has always been in my nature and just writing about people and their psychology, what makes them do the things they do, getting really great characters together. For me also, just television and stories are sort of what kept me regulated as a kid. Like I looked to TV dads instead of my own dad, right? And what so, were you into? Like Blossom and like just shows like Punky Brewster. And I mean, these are the 80s kind of mm -hmm. things. And then in the 90s, it was just like Full House. I know that's mm -hmm. kind of like a cheesy show, but like- well, I've seen every episode five times. Yeah. Right. And like, those are my TV families. Clarissa explains it all, like just different TV families that I would watch. And so I just became obsessed with stories and how can I be a part of that? And eventually I realized that that obsession is really just an obsession with people and wanting to talk to people and understand people and tell me your story. And then sort of, I was like, maybe I need to kind of shift gears a bit so I can actually engage with that person's story and possibly alter the outcome in a way that's more positive and help support them in that, you know? And so that's when I shifted when I was 25, my whole focus became from working in entertainment to actually getting into just regular old social work. You and I were talking before about talking to strangers. I actually bought a domain name that was talks to strangers.co. <laughs> I, I was, it. I wanted I to do like a blog. I was going to have a blog about it or something. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, when I was working in entertainment, I worked in comedy. I worked for, you know, there's like a satirical newspaper called The Onion. Huh? And so like, I was around a lot of comedians for a while and talk about like trauma and things that like you listen to people's stories. That's where comedy comes from. I feel like comedy and tragedy are kind of, when we laugh and cry, it kind of comes from the same place. And so just being around that, you just see how rich people are. And there's nothing more fulfilling than engaging in that way. And that's when we're our most connected and safe in our nervous system. When we feel truly connected to each other in that way, we feel safe. It's just magical. So are you into reality TV? <laughs> I I do have my guilty pleasures for sure. Are you I into do. Housewives? I have. I have watched Housewives. I haven't kept up on all of them, but I was into, I started with, I think it I think OC, because that was kind of similar to the area I grew up in as a kid. There's a lot of gated communities in that area in South Florida. And so it's a kind of crazy world that's very surreal. And then I watched New York, New Jersey. What are the other ones? Beverly Hills, Atlanta. Beverly Hills. I didn't, I didn't watch Atlanta yet. I think I've only seen a few episodes of that. And then Salt Lake I watched recently. 
You've watched it? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, New York obviously is gone, but God, there were some amazing seasons of that. Yes, yeah, that's a crazy world, reality television. I definitely wouldn't be able to survive that for sure. But it's, I mean, fuck, I love it. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's a good outlet. I will say that it's a good outlet. Mm -hmm. So when you transition into this, when did you take more of like a, a trauma route or was that always the direction that you were going in? I think I've always been fascinated with it. I think I sought out in social work school. They didn't, I think they only had one class and it was like a summer class that was advanced trauma treatment or something like that. And so I did, or it was like childhood trauma. And I took that one class and I was like, this is it. Like there's something here. And I learned about somatic experiencing a little bit at that time as well. But then I sort of got sidetracked going into the addiction treatment, which is so crazy to think that they don't talk about that in the centers so much. But I was doing a lot of paperwork and administrative stuff. So it wasn't like I could really get deep into doing the type of one-on-one work that I do now with people. I also needed more training. I really did. So I would say it really wasn't until I started getting really sick and I started experiencing deeper levels of chronic illness that I started realizing the connection of trauma and my own body and what was happening to me, and that this is a key missing piece for my own healing, and I need to focus more on getting more training in this. And so, and so I'd when say did that, all that start? When did you start to get sick, and what was going on? Technically, I was not a very healthy child. I think that in my 20s, in my early 20s, I sort of ignored that and covered that up with alcohol and just partying, but I was going to doctors after doctors all throughout my 20s, and then around 27, 28 is when I got diagnosed with Lyme disease, And it was like, everything stopped to kind of get this really extreme treatment, getting a port put in my chest, doing IV antibiotics every day, all day, five different antibiotics, different rotating. And it was like the level of side effects for that was like chemotherapy. Like I got down to 80 pounds. It was just couldn't eat anything. It was really intense. And I was bedridden at that time. And I think that that was the point where, you know, I couldn't work. I had to just be with myself. And I was like, crap. I'm like, I'm in it. I'm in it. Do you actually have Lyme disease? Do you know? Yeah. So I only get that from a tick. Like, is that a stupid question? I mean, supposedly that's the way that the CDC says you get it, but there are multiple ways you can get it from, they say it can be sexually transmitted. Really? I think there needs to be more research on that, but so it's not something that is definite by any means, but people say you can get it from other vectors like mosquitoes, but I don't know all the research that's up to date with Lyme disease, because honestly, I feel like I've had to kind of separate myself from it because it became my identity for a period and it wasn't healthy. Do you Um, think that you had had it for like a really long time and you didn't know? At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
Yeah. So I grew up on Long Island before my family moved to Florida and we grew a, like Lyme, Connecticut is across the water from where I grew up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I didn't um, know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it was discovered in Lyme, Connecticut. And so there was, and I went to summer camps in upstate New York and in Massachusetts, and there was just tons of ticks. And I've definitely had tick bites throughout my childhood and I just had chronic health issues. So we do think that I probably like a lot of it could be attributed to Lyme disease, but I have no idea. So probably had it for 20 years before I got it diagnosed, but we and don't what know. What are the major symptoms? Honestly, Fatigue. there's so many. I mean, how is it showing up for you? So initially what would happen is like, I had a really bad flu that I didn't get over, but mostly it's a chronic fatigue, different sensitivities that developed. I developed environmental sensitivities to chemicals, mold, just different things. I became allergic to my cats where I wasn't allergic to my cats before, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, mood swings, a lot of emotional issues because so much of it causes uh, inflammation in the brain. There's like your whole body's inflamed and your nervous system is just on high alert in that way. So your mood is completely unstable, deep depression, just overall, just general pain and fatigue for me and the mood swings were really bad. Stomach problems. You can't really eat a lot of foods. You become sensitive to foods. That was just my personal experience. But for everybody, it can be different, honestly, which is why it's so hard to pin down if you have it. Love it. And so then yeah. how long was that like a battle for you? Well, I was actively battling it probably for a year and a half before I just decided I was doing an infusion where I had, you know, the IV line going and I didn't clear the line. And so when you have an IV line going, you have to clear all the air out of it because you can't get air in your veins because then you would cause an embolism. <laughs> exactly. I forgot to clear the line and the liquid's going in. And I realized I didn't clear the line and I start having chest pains and I start having what is the beginning signs of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is crazy. I just went through nine months of this intense treatment and I'm going to be the one that kills myself. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to be the one that accidentally kills myself in this situation. This is crazy. I feel sick. This isn't even working. So my boyfriend at the time, he had to rush over. We got a syringe to suck out the air bubble. Ooh. And then I came to, I rolled over on my side, called the nurse. They's like, okay, you don't have to get to the hospital. If you have any more pain, go to the hospital. But I ended up coming back after like a half hour. And just, I realized I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do these treatments anymore. I don't want to fight this anymore. I want to be gentle with my body. I need to seek alternative ways of just supporting my body back to a place of balance because killing bugs in my body with 20 different antibiotics, it's making me, I feel like I'm dying. I just want to live my life again. And so I found more holistic means of treating Lyme disease at that point. And I moved to Los Angeles and I started hiking every day. I was just outside in nature and just honestly getting out of the environment I was in was one of the biggest issues that I think helped my nervous system and helped my immune system just sort of get back to a place of feeling nourished. And it just, it wasn't these harsh treatments. I needed to be gentle and it took a while for me to, to get to that point, but I got there. So and were there more, was there more stuff that came up? Well, the thing is some of those sensitivities linger. So I still have sensitivities to mold. And so living in an environment, if there's water damage in a place, it can have the potential to trigger my immune system and trigger my nervous system to be on high alert. And I have some symptoms from that. But other than that, I really try not to focus on all the little symptoms that I used to have even though I might have fatigue at times, even though there might still be aches and pains, the way I relate with it is so different than it was before. 
before when I would have symptoms, it's like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I need to do something about this. Now it's just like, what if I just show myself some support and nourishment and not make so much of a big deal out of it, just bring support for my body. And they typically come and go. They're not forever. Just like emotions, they go. If you don't resist them, you don't try and suppress. And that's sort of what I learned. And I don't really identify as having Lyme disease anymore. It's just, it wasn't helpful for me. And initially, I think certain labels are helpful to point you towards a specific kind of treatment that might be able to help. But after a certain point, when you hold that label so dearly, it just takes over your whole life. And it wasn't healthy for me at that point to just be everything about all about Lyme Lyme disease. disease girl. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm going to be a Lyme warrior and that's no offense to anybody that's going through it, but that's sort of what happens. You just become consumed by disease. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So out of all of the certifications that you have and modalities that you have, what are you most passionate about? I would say somatic work, somatic work, working with the nervous system, supporting your nervous system, because at that, if you can provide that kind of regulation to your system, then you can handle and have the capacity for, to tolerate stress. And if we can tolerate stress, then our behaviors are different. And so I feel like predominantly we have to address things first from our body feeling safe mm-hmm. because we can try and convince ourselves and tell ourselves that we're safe all we want, tell ourselves we're going to be okay, do all the affirmations all day long. But if your body doesn't feel safe, you're not going to believe it. And so we really have to work on that approach before we can really believe any of these cognitive approaches that we do. And so for me, it's that combination of those two things, working first with the body and then working on retraining the brain. Cognitive stuff. And so when did you start really studying SE? I would say that was probably when I was going through my challenges. So probably more 2015-ish, 2016 is when I started getting into it more personally. And then more formal training at the Somatic Experiencing Institute last year but I was doing other trainings before then. I did something called somatic practice with Kathy Kane. She was a teacher at Somatic Experiencing Institute a little while ago. I don't think she teaches there anymore, but I also worked on another course called the Biology of Trauma Certification, which combines working on health and the biology with the emotional, with trauma, knowing that your body has to be nourished and you have to have the right nutrition in order to even have a regulated nervous system. So we have to handle our health physically and emotionally. And so those are the two things that I've become really passionate about. about. So, I mean, obviously we talk about, you know, body work and somatics a lot. I'm trying to think like if I've had somebody, I mean, I've had Irene Lyon on, but I'm trying to think like, can you explain specifically what is somatic experience? Cause it's obviously like Peter Levine's thing, but like, how is it unique in its own way? The way that I explain it is really connecting the brain with the body. And the supportive, nourishing touch movement, and just really re-engaging your system with the external and internal environment. So the sensations we have inside us, the emotions we have inside us, and how can we relate to it in a way that we stay connected to ourselves and not go off where we're feeling completely dissociated, disconnected. So learning how to come back into the body, body. via touch and movement. So say I'm like a new client of yours, where Mm -hmm. do you start with me? Like if we're going to do somatic experiencing work. Yeah. So the way I start with all of my clients is first getting to know your system. So we have to track your states and your patterns. And so I have a nervous system tracker that I go over with everybody that talks about the different states of the nervous system. And we look at where are you throughout the day? 
Do you wake up feeling more activated? Do you wake up feeling more shut down? Do you stay kind of shut down most of the day? You just wake up shut down, you stay shut down. Are you ever feeling like you're actually calm and connected with the world around you? Or are we saying mostly just highly activated and feeling stressed all the time? And so we look at your patterns at first. And then the way that I address those patterns very slowly is by providing different somatic exercises to help support that state of the nervous system. So when we're feeling stressed, sometimes we need a little bit more movement. And when we're feeling more shut down, sometimes we need just a little more time and space and bringing energy into the system via nutrition or something like that. But it really depends on the person where I start and everyone is really unique, but basically I have to learn your system and we do that very slowly and not to overwhelm and not do too many things at once. And so when you're saying, I'm looking to see like where your nervous system is, when you're talking about like shutdown activated, I mean, are we talking about like fight, flight, freeze? Yes. So we're talking about like, so the three primary states of the nervous system. So this is polyvagal theory. This is Dr. Stephen Porges' work, right? And so if we are in that ventral vagal state, that's our calm connected, what people think of as regulated. And then when we are feeling activated, that is our stress response. So that is the fight or flight. And I think a lot of people confuse fight or flight with survival mode. But honestly, our true survival mode is actually when we are shut down or frozen. That is when we are conserving our energy in survival mode. And so once we feel a threat, we're going to move from typically our regulated or baseline state into an activated state. That's the fight or flight. Now we're mobilizing, we're moving. And if we don't have enough energy or resources to deal with that threat, we will shut down. And that is when we drop into that dorsal vagal shape or the freeze and shut down, totally collapsed. I'm immobilized. I can't move. I'm dissociated. I don't know if I've ever asked anybody this before, but like when we're talking about fight and flight, I mean, obviously we understand like from a literal sense Mm -hmm. what that means, but in a more like day-to-day life, like what, what does that actually look like? What does fight look like versus flight? Yeah. So the thing that I like to say is that we are all designed to activate and have a stress response. We don't want to get rid of our stress response. If something comes up that we have to deal with, that we have to be mobilized to take action towards it. So typically in a situation when we think of something a little bit more of a stressful situation, it's going to be if I have, let's say, an issue that comes up in a relationship and I feel I need to defend myself in that situation, we might go to our fight response where we're going to actively engage with that person the way I'm going to defend myself and speak what I need to fight for in that situation. However, some people go into more of that flight response to defend themselves and run away instead. And these are both stress responses. Both of these things work in that way. And so some people, it depends on how we grew up and how our environment shaped up, which one we're going to typically react with. What would freeze be though in that situation? Cause like flight is kind of like freeze in a way, like you're not going to, I mean, I don't know what it freezes. Like you're just staying there and doing nothing. (laughs) So flight is actually an active response. So it's not freeze. We're actually still moving. Think of running away from the bear, right? So the difference is if we're a bear is approaching us, we either fight the bear, physically fight it and punch it. Or we run away from the bear. Those are really active responses. Yeah, but though, we're right? not going like, to physically like run away from an email or like a phone call. But we might avoid it. Yeah. But then what would freeze be in that situation then? Isn't freeze? avoiding it as well? It is. It is a type of avoidance. However, it's also like I can't move at all. And I might be more completely shut down. And that could take days 
you know? And so a, a flight response, it's, I understand there's like subtle differences, but yeah. there's a little bit more action involved in I'm taking the step to, you know, ignore this thing. Shutting down is I can't move at all. I don't know if I ever go into freeze. You know, the thing is there's, I don't know if you spend any time on Instagram, you'll probably see the term functional freeze coming up um, yes. at some Explain point. Explain right? that. Yes. One, that's one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake at the same time. And what I often see for a lot of people who many people think they're stuck in fight and flight, but in fact, they are quite frequently dipping into this functional free zone where they're on autopilot, where it's like, they're still getting their stuff done, but they're kind of out of energy while they're doing it. And there's zero gas in the tank at that point, but we're still having responsibilities we have to take care of. So it's like, we're running on pure adrenaline mm -hmm. to get it done. So, so many people who live in functional freeze are just relying on stressful things to sort of wake them up and keep them going. But the second that that task that needs to get done is over, the second that threat is addressed, they drop straight down into I'm burnt out now. And I'm like, I got to collapse. I got to just kind of do nothing. So those are the people that tend to be more living in that autopilot functional freeze, which is a little bit more of a step up from being totally shut down because we're still going through the motions of life. However, we don't have gas in the tank. So we're just running on pure stress hormones. And how does one identify if they're in functional freeze? I mean, obviously you have that crash, but anything else? Yeah. I mean, I would say that, does it feel like I'm wired and tired at the same time where it's just like, I'm going, 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 but I also, I can sense how overwhelmed my system is. I can sense that I'm just exhausted, but I got to keep going. So it's almost like it is drinking a lot of coffee to just stay going, you know, that wired feeling. It's not the same thing as truly having energy. And you can sense that there's something propping you up artificially and it doesn't feel natural and it doesn't feel nourishing or supportive to the body, but you feel kind of disconnected. You kind of feel like you're watching your own life, like from the outside a little bit still. It's not like you're really fully immersed and present. And so I would just say that wired and tired feeling is probably more of the key thing to look for. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing any other sort of patterns as far as what one's typical stress response tends to be? And that's a very broad question, but I'm just curious if you've noticed any patterns through working with individuals. So can you kind of point me to a little bit more specific? I think what do I, what do I mean? I don't know. What about like in relationships? Have you noticed any patterns based off what one stress response is or how they show up at work or anything? I'm not, yeah, I'm not so I mean, broad, but <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even like overworking, you know, trying to busy yourself, staying busy all the time. I have a lot of people that like to work out a lot. And so it's like, are we working out because we actually have the energy to do so? Or is it keeping you kind of artificially popped up on these stress hormones and we're addicted to our own adrenaline? And so that's one way it can manifest. It can manifest as overworking. It can manifest as just different behaviors and coping strategies that we have. So everyone really is different, but I would say in relationships, I mean, it really depends on your attachment style at that point, <laughs> how you learn to deal with stress, you know, because how our parents learn to deal with stress, that's how our nervous system learns to regulate or not. So everybody brings in their own special flavor when it comes to relationship dynamics, but the way people handle stress completely varies. So it's hard to really say if there's one particular pattern, I will say for the people who experience chronic illness, What's always a telltale sign for most people who have autoimmunity or anything like this. And I know Dr. Gabe Armate talks about this a lot, but it's a pattern of 
chronically neglecting the self, chronically suppressing emotions, chronically not using your voice and having lack of authenticity in your own voice and actions where you're pleasing others all the time at the detriment to your own needs. So there's just this chronic abandonment of self that happens when people tend to reach the point of chronic illness. And so when we're looking at like polyvagal theory and tying that in with somatic experiencing, so are you using polyvagal theory to kind of suss out what, like what's going on with someone's nervous system and then using somatic experiencing exercises accordingly? Yeah. And so you can also tell a lot about just sitting across from someone. So much of communication is nonverbal. Most of it, in fact, is. And you can see the way people present in their bodies because our bodies speak a lot more than we can even consciously realize. I remember sometimes when I was in therapy in the beginning, when I was 19, I'd have this affect where I'd be laughing about things that were incredibly traumatic and just like, <laughs> oh, ha, 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 this horrible thing. And then he beat me. And ha, 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 right? <laughs> you know, that's a mismatched affect, right? With the story. And so you can see at the way that people talk, the way that they hold themselves, the way that they'll say they're fine, but their body language is collapsed. A somebody who might be more shut down might be a little bit more hunched over and collapsed. There might be a slowness in the way they speak. There may be just kind of, you can see a disconnection where they're not able to engage and have, you know, that same kind of level of holding attention. And then somebody who might be more activated, there's going to be more mobility, more movement, maybe more darting their eyes around the room. So when we do a basic foundational exercise called orienting, where we're literally just slowly allowing our eyes to look around our environment, you can see what their eyes do. How quickly do they move? I'm proud of that. You know? Right. And so we can, yeah, we can just assess, you know, is there fidgeting? You know, is there a lot of that, which is really just attempting to self-soothe? How much of that is present or is that not present at all? And we're totally shut down and we have that learned helplessness and now we've given up and we're just lacked. So people present differently and you can tell that no matter what they're saying, the body's still speaking. What is a generic, basic somatic experiencing exercise that anybody can do? I'd say like the orienting exercise is basically 101, just finding a comfortable position where you can feel the support behind your back support of the chair holding you, sensing your feet on the ground, because once again, the nervous system, it speaks the language of sensation. And that's really what the work of somatic experiences is about. How can we expand our tolerance for the sensations we feel in our body and not judge them and not say, Ooh, can't feel that. Right. So like, even now, if you were to just notice sitting back in your chair, feeling mm -hmm. physical, actual support on your spine, so that your nervous system gets the message, something is supporting me right now. And then we just slowly let your eyes go where they wanna go and kind of looking at your environment and just resetting like, I'm here in this moment right now. What do I sense? What do I see? What do I smell? What do I hear? How do I re-engage with my senses in the right here and now if in case my body is off somewhere in a past trauma? right? We're bringing it back to the present. We're using the present moment to deal with the sensations that might be going on that are related to the past. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And just yeah. doing that for just a couple minutes. Yeah. Do that for as long as you tolerate, right? And some people might not tolerate that very well. Some people can't, and some people have to be with their eyes closed because it's too much stimuli to take in the world around them. And so they might need to just use other senses like their ears. Like, what do I hear? Because taking in the visual is too much for me. What can I sense? Yeah. And we can just modify it based on how somebody responds to that. But, you know, for the most part, orienting tends to be well tolerated, but 
not everybody responds the same way. So I always have that disclaimer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good to know. So the other thing that you mentioned was, so like, let's first connect in with the body and kind of get regulated there. And then like, let's then move on to the more subconscious belief, the mindset stuff, faulty beliefs. Or I'm curious, what has been like the most recent, like profound aha that you've had about yourself? Oh gosh. You know, it's so interesting because I think that I've had a lot of resistance to this idea. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of parts work. And so internal family systems is sort of how it's popularized. I had a resistance to this type of training for a really long time. And I think it was because it felt like I was splitting myself up so much. And it's like, isn't it all me? Is everything just have to be this part of me? And then I realized as I've gotten feeling more support in my own nervous system, learning how to be with my own body. There's a different way that I like to approach the parts work where you can start getting comfortable with sensing into your body and allowing whatever sensation comes up to come up. And you can sense that maybe not all of you feels that, but there's a part that's there. And what happens Mm -hmm. if instead of ignoring that, I just sit with it. And then the longer I sit with it, then I do notice an image might come to my head Mm -hmm. or a feeling in my body of like wanting to stomp my foot. And I don't have to necessarily know what that's all about, but by combining that awareness with some of the somatic work, it almost helps to create a resolution for that part of me. And it's, I think the biggest thing for me is knowing that I don't need to know all the deep whys of why that is happening or why that is coming up. I just need to allow it to be there and follow the movement of that, of what it's asking for. And as long as I can do that with being curious and compassionate, instead of judging myself, like that's weird, or why is this happening? Or I need to go digging. What part of me is this? What wound is this about? It takes me out of it when I do that. And I think that's a way, I think it's called more embodied parts work or interrelational focusing. That's what I'm really into now that I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. I don't hate parts work. It's just the way that it was presented. Like they have all these labels. This part of you is a manager. This part of you is a firefighter. This part of you is the exile. And I'm like, this is not resonating with me. (laughs) I can acknowledge that there are these sensations and there are these parts of me, but I don't necessarily feel the need to label them. I just notice, I notice and I be with, and it feels so much more loving to me and like everything I just ever wanted as a child. And I'm just kind of giving that to myself now. I love that you shared that because I think that that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people listening. And yeah, there's a lot of people in my community that are that do IFS, but there's a lot of people that are doing it that are having a hard time connecting with it. So I think that that's probably really helpful. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to bash no. IFS. It can totally help Different a lot strokes of people. for different folks. Exactly. Everybody's different. Yeah. So how have you, are you, are you married? You're married, right? I'm married. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So how have you noticed childhood patterning come up in your relationship? Oh my gosh. You know, it's so, it's so interesting. Relationships really are the deepest work. I think in my experience where it's just, it can be so easy to feel. I was single for six years before I met my husband and it was so easy for me to, to feel. I remember what I was going to ask you, but keep going. I'm just going to write this down. So I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Write it down. Go ahead. It was so easy for me to not feel triggered and feel like such an enlightened being for the six years in my thirties where I was single and where I felt like I had done all this work and I figured all this stuff out and I supported my health. And then, you know, I met my husband And he was very much different. I had broke the patterns. It was a healthy relationship. However, there's always stuff that comes up because he has his own stuff. Mm -hmm. And and that kind of brought to light that maybe I still have some things that are left to explore. 
And I think that that is a very humbling experience and it's going to be, you know, an ongoing experience that it's just, we both have to acknowledge the parts of us that get triggered by each other, right? That I have this wound, he has that sensitivity and it doesn't always match very well for those particular styles of attachment that we have. I have that more tendency to go to the anxious side. He has that more tendency to be a little bit more avoidant, not the best dynamic, but yet very, very common. And yes. so it's becoming very aware of how do we deal with that? And so we have a lot of communication of ground rules. How would you like, is it okay if my husband is overwhelmed? Is it okay, Jamie, if I just go and walk away, I'm not abandoning the conversation, but I'm going to need to downregulate so that I can come back and be present for the conversation. So having that open communication has been very important because otherwise in the past, it would have been like, he's running away and You're I'm trying to after him. Yeah. Exactly. But I've learned, okay, if he's going to walk away, then that means I stay here and let him regulate. And then I say, my request is you come back and we talk about it when you're regulated. And that's that. But having to do that work with another person takes a lot of effort, <laughs> takes a lot of effort. And I'm by no means an expert on everything with that because I still have my blind spot that he's going to help see more clearly than I can. And I can see things about him, right? That we can't, we can only see so much of ourselves. So you can't see outside of ourselves in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what mm -hmm. I was going to say is you, in this, what you were saying about the parts work, I think really touches to a concept or something that can be very confusing to people is that we can, we don't have to remember our trauma in order to heal it. No, I, I was hoping that you could kind of touch some more on that. Absolutely. I'll just say that because especially in my community, it's like, you know, so many people they're like, but I don't remember. Yes. I don't remember my childhood at all. How am I going to heal this if I can't remember what happened to me? Exactly. And what I would say is we have a somatic narrative before we have a cognitive narrative as babies, like pre-verbal trauma is a thing. And the reason is we don't have the words for something, but our body can feel it. And so there might not be things that we remember, remember cognitively from when we were babies, but the way that certain sensations or things that happen in our body, there's a feeling, there's a sense of like, there's a memory here, but I just don't have the words for it. And that's okay. Can we just work with that sensation? Can we support what just came up in the present moment? We don't have to necessarily know what it's about, right? Can we just trust that it's coming up for a reason it's showing itself and we provide the support for whatever shows. And that's often what I think happens when we don't have that cognition because trauma fragments our memories in that way as well. So it's just not necessary. It's also very activating to talk about things. And especially, you know, if we do have the memories, we don't have to always talk about them to get through and heal and come to resolution in the body. So I think it's just very important to just honor and acknowledge what shows up as, you know, we're working on this and putting our awareness on our body. Yeah. I just had on, he has a big YouTube channel. His name's Dr. Kirk Honda, but he was sharing about how, when he first started practicing, he's a psychotherapist not realizing that he was being harmful to his clients. Like, you know, he thought he understood trauma, but he didn't, you know, and just that the having them, you know, talking about it and, and realizing that, you know, that they were dissociating and him not being able to put, pick up on that and how it's, you know, re-traumatizing to people and how, how I think it's just really scary how few, how few therapists out there actually really understand this stuff. I mean, it's, it's getting definitely a lot better, but I would still say the vast majority of them don't. 
Yeah. I mean, trauma is stored via sensory data. So like those senses, that's why we work with the senses, because depending on what we saw at the time, what we felt at the time, what we heard at the time, what, you know, we tasted at the time, all of those things get memorized in our brain. And these neural pathways are carved out, memorizing what happened at the time of the trauma so that if we ever sense any of those things again, it will trip that wire so quickly so we can defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. But talking about it is also going to trip that wire. And then we will have all those physical sensations that happen come up as if they're happening right now. So we're activating and triggering these traumatic neural pathways when we're talking. And if we don't have resources for our body and our nervous system, as that's happening, can be incredibly overwhelming and flooding and we will shut down. And if a therapist doesn't have the training to know what's going on, you've just created somebody who's now in a state of overwhelm and they're deep into freeze at this moment. And so how are you going to support them if you don't have that training? Did you experience like pretty intense emotional flashbacks? Yes. And yes. Trigger it. I would say definitely probably talk therapy wasn't helpful after a certain point. And then also dealing with chronic illness, having physical symptoms, there's just, and dealing with the medical industry and going to doctor after doctor who were gaslighting and just being, having to constantly explain yourself. That is the feeling I had when I was a child. That is the feeling I carry with me my whole life. And so the flashbacks would come a lot with that medical trauma. So it's its own beast when you have that, when you're trying to get, and this is for anybody who's seeking treatment for anything, whether it's addiction or any kind of mental health treatment, you have someone where you're explaining what you're going through and they're not compassionate and they're not validating you and they don't understand why this might be presenting the way it is. You feel incredibly gaslit and it's re-traumatizing when you're seeking support for yourself and you're not getting that you're not heard. And so I just think it's just so important to have the right people who actually understand that and have that trauma-informed lens because you could really cause further damage to someone. Well, but it's so hard to find the right people. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I made like a little mini training that talks about my journey. I call it the five detours on the road to trauma recovery. And I talk about the mistakes I made and lessons I learned when getting help. And at the end of it, I list like a, a series of questions to ask a potential practitioner to know if they're trauma trained. And so if anyone wants to check that out, they can find that. And, you I'll know, so for show notes. yeah, so it's totally free. Because I just wanted people to like, these are some questions to ask. This is how you'll know if somebody's actually, they'll say they work with trauma, but do they really understand survival physiology? Do they really have a holistic and integrative approach? Or is it just talking this? And how many years experience do they have? Like who, like how long have they been doing this? What kind of training did they get? I think it's really important to know these things and that people and therapists acknowledge their limitations where, where they are. Okay. So tell me like, how can people work with you? What are you doing? What are you excited about? What are you working on? Anything go for it. Yeah. So I have a little mini course called the nervous system 101 that kind of like helps you get started with tracking your own nervous system. And it's just a very easy to digest kind of material. I had a group program I was doing called the nervous system reset, which goes very much in depth, but I'm kind of reworking that and then currently working one-on-one with people. I've gone back to just doing one-on-one work because I think so many people, you know, my platform grew very quickly on Instagram. And I think when that happens, a lot of people, we get overwhelmed and we can't do as much one-on-one work anymore, but it's so important. And I don't want to discount that. I think being able to work personally with people is so important. So that's sort of where I'm focusing right now. So if people are looking for one-to-one coaching, I do offer that at this time. Wonderful. Well, this was yeah. such a treat. I really appreciate yeah. it. Fine.
that's a lot of good shit. People are gonna get a lot out of this, so I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. It was great talking with you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.